Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked up to the second canto of Purgatorio. Huzzah! We are about to begin, for my money, the much more complex opening canto of Purgatorio. This one's a doozy, and it's got a lot of problems inside of it, and some textual, in fact. And a lot of interpretive quagmire that we're going to enter. This is going to help us understand the difficulty of Purgatorio and also the rewards of unpacking the treasure chest. And let me say, we're never going to get to the bottom of the treasure chest. <laughs> this podcast is about lines 1 through 12 of Purgatorio Canto 2. It's my English translation of the Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. They both go to the same place. You can read along, print it off, and even drop a comment there if you'd like. Dante's been cleaned up with the rush. He and Virgil have been sent down to the shore, and now they have to move from there or at least so you'd think. The sun had already gotten up to the horizon, that is, at the meridian circle at which it stands up over Jerusalem at its highest point. Likewise, midnight, that is, the circle coming around from the other side, was rising from the Ganges River with the scales of Libra, which fall from night's hand as she takes on her full reign. In just such a moment, just where I was, the white and rosy cheeks of gorgeous Aurora were becoming orange as she aged. But we were still hanging around on the seashore. We were like people who think up the road ahead, whose hearts are moving on even as their bodies remain where they are. Lots of astrological notations in this passage, a little bit of emotional landscape at the end of it. It starts us off into a progression through zodiac symbolism, which will bedevil us from here on out in comedy. Many things to talk about, so let's get started. Up first, I'd like to make a confession, and <laughs> recording this, having just dropped a whole lot of episodes up front on Purgatorio 1, and I'm already ahead of you and recording Purgatorio 2, and I was listening to those episodes as I was dropping them onto this podcast, and I, I got dissatisfied, so let me make a confession. I'm talking a lot about what lies ahead. Oh, when we get to Beatrice, and oh, the seven kingdoms of Purgatory, and oh, the blah, blah. And there's a lot of talk about what lies ahead of us, even on through to Paradiso. I kind of have to do it. Purgatorio is more difficult. I didn't need to cast us out into the future so much in Inferno. But the need to understand more what's happening here is so predicated on knowing what's going to happen. I mean, Dante is setting us up to have read the poem to fully understand the passage at hand. So I'm a little embarrassed about always casting us into the future of the poem. And yet at the same time, I sort of have to. There's a couple of reasons why this might be. I mean, is Dante see himself as a poet more of the poem ahead? Does he have it now more fully in his head than, let's say, when Inferno opened? Mm, I can quibble with that a little bit, but okay. 
does he? And is that why so much of what happens here reflects on what's going to happen on down the road or what's going to happen on down the road reflects back here? Or is it because Dante is intentionally complicating the poem. For example, those bits at the end of Canto 1 where the rhyme is the same as those at the end of the Ulysses passage. And I made this big deal about Dante's relying on us to have read this poem so closely that we recognize details like that. Is that really part of the strategy? Is Dante starting to complicate the poem and make an assumption that I'm going to study this poem very carefully and certainly read it more than once? If so, this is definitely a node of our poet's hubris, his pride, but also it is, of course, forcing us to bend and torque a little bit as we talk through comedy. Inferno 2 starts with the sun setting. Remember, Dante has tried to climb the hill. He's been blocked by the beast. He's fallen back down. Virgil has appeared. Virgil has explained what's ahead. And then they set off. And when we turn to Cato 2 of Inferno, the sun is setting. All the night creatures are coming out. Everything's going to bed as they set off on their walk to the underworld. In Purgatorio 2, here the opening of the second Canto, The sun is rising. That can't be a mistake. There has got to be a parallelism established between what happened before and what is happening now. It strikes me that this parallelism is important because... The second canto of Purgatorio is so intensely structured. It is, this is the structure, it is a prelude followed by two crucial and defining instances and then a postlude. That's how Canto 2 gets structured. And given that it is so heavily structured, then we can also see that it may be resonating structurally back to Inferno 2. More on that in the episodes ahead. Let's start out the passage, and let me try to explain this rather difficult astrological and astronomical notation that we begin everything with. The sun had already gotten up to the horizon, that is, at the meridian circle at which it stands, up over Jerusalem at its highest point. In order to explain this, let me have you picture a clock face with 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Put Jerusalem at 12. Imagine that the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified is at the 12 mark on the clock face. By that logic for Dante, if you drop down to the 6 mark on the clock face, you're at purgatory. You're at the mountain where he's standing. He's standing dead opposite Jerusalem on this circle. Now, what's sitting at three and nine on that clock. What's sitting at those positions are the Straits of Gibraltar and the Ganges River. So the sun, and here's the problem, the sun is going around the earth. This is what's so difficult. The sun is going around the earth. That clock face is fixed. When it's sunset in Jerusalem, It's sunrise in purgatory. 
I know this is hard to get into our heads because we know that when it's 6 a.m. in, I don't know, New York City, it's not 6 p.m. in Buenos Aires. We we know that that doesn't make any sense. Dante is still just a little bit imagining the globe as a two-dimensional circle. This is part of his problem, and this is how you can tell he's medieval. He knows it's a sphere, And yet what he imagines it, what he imagines is a circle. Furthermore, he thinks that this clock face, this globe, is set. So when it's sunset at the top, it would be sunrise at the bottom. And that's what we've got here. But now, listen, I've told you all along that basically the journey is all up with the exception of two moments, all up, all up, all up. In this one moment, and several like it, but in this one moment here, Dante's actually flipped the globe. The Jerusalem part is at the top. This is the way that most maps were made in Dante's day. Jerusalem is at the north, so when you look at a map, you tend to think of Jerusalem out on the east. Now imagine you rotate that whole map 90 degrees and put Jerusalem at the top. Now what does your map look like of the world? This is part of the problem of coming to terms with Dante's geography. It may be amazing that he knows that the world is a globe, but there's ways he still thinks of it as a two-dimensional object and ways he's got it oriented weird. And in this case, he's kind of flipped Jerusalem up at the top and purgatory would be at the bottom. Now, we know in terms of the journey that this is actually opposite. If we looked at Dante's journey, Jerusalem would be at the bottom and purgatory would be at the top because it's from here he's going to start ascending up into the heavens. That's all difficult and ahead of us. It's just really crucial to look at what he's saying here and thus as he's sitting at purgatory, night is falling over the Ganges so it would be sunset in Jerusalem as it's dawn here. And You'll notice one piece of this clock face is missing, and that's Gibraltar. Robert Hollander makes a great deal out of that. He says that the missing piece of Gibraltar from this diagram of what the spatial circular Earth looks like, that Gibraltar is missing, calls Ulysses once more back into the poem because that's where Ulysses sets out from, sails beyond the Straits of Hercules, beyond Gibraltar and out into what we would now say is the open Atlantic. Maybe. I don't know that Hollander can really argue that. I don't know that you can argue a complete premise from a lack or a void, but it could certainly be so. And it's all part of this difficulty of our trying to figure out exactly what's going on here in the poem. If I start from the top again and read it, let me just point out something that is really crucial here to understanding. The sun had already gotten up to the horizon, that is, at the meridian circle at which it stands up over Jerusalem at its highest point. Likewise, midnight, that is, the circle coming around from the other side, was rising up from the Ganges with the scales of Libra, which fall from night's hand as she takes her full ray. This is very 
very poetic. The sun is in Libra in the northern hemisphere. The sun in late March is in Libra. Dante doesn't know where the sun is and in what constellations the sun would be in in the southern hemisphere. So, okay, you got to forgive him that. So the sun is in Libra. And Dante doesn't, again, see the Earth as revolving. So the zodiac signs are difficult. But the poetic idea here is that since the sun is in Libra, therefore at night, Libra, the scales of Libra have fallen from night's hand. There's probably a bigger point here about scales of justice moving toward daylight and away from night. In fact, let me just say that there is an entire zodiac landscape to Purgatorio and Paradiso. And while it has been explored by many scholars, there is still so much work to be done about the zodiac and the astrological significances found in the last two cantos of comedy. But here's what I want to say about this bit. The cosmos is alive. The scales, Libra, has fallen from night's hand as she takes takes on her full reign. In just such a moment, the passage goes on, just where I was, the white and rosy cheeks of gorgeous Aurora were becoming orange as she aged. I mean, the cosmos is alive. Aurora, the goddess of dawn? The goddess of dawn is a thing. Her cheeks are personified. She's going from pink to orange as the sun rises. Libra is falling out of night's hands. The cosmos is utterly alive. And you and I both know that the cosmos has been alive for so many millennia. The cosmos has been this place where you look up and the gods are, the heavens are alive, the constellations represent actual physical characters. Well, it's alive here. It's a little jarring in a Christian poem of the afterlife to have the goddess Aurora. Dante's going to have to solve that. He will try down the road to solve that. How do you still have the goddess Aurora in a Christian poem? That is a really difficult question, but it lies far ahead of us. Let me also say that that bit in line seven of my translation is actually in line eight of the Florentine, just where I was, that callback to where Dante is flips the globe back. If for a moment we saw the globe with Jerusalem at the 12th position on the face of the clock, saying just where I was, flips it back. And now Jerusalem is on the bottom of the globe and purgatory is on the top. It's just a momentary flip in which we see Jerusalem in a standard position. But now at my line seven in the text, in the Florentine line eight, we flipped back and Purgatory is sitting at the top of the globe. The last three lines of this passage are, we were still hanging around on the seashore. We were like people who think out the road ahead, whose hearts are moving on even as their bodies remain where they are. Hesitancy is the main thematic of this canto. As we move to Canto 2, it's all about being hesitant in various ways. Let me say a couple things about this. Here's where I want to start. Virgil may not be the best guide for purgatory. In fact, 
Virgil is going to come into, and here I'm pushing into the future, sorry about that, Virgil is going to come into quite a drubbing in the first seven cantos of Purgatorio. In fact, Virgil is going to be forced into making very wild assessments of his own writing and, in fact, his own place in the cosmos. If we go back to Canto 1, remember when Virgil plucks up the rush, and I told you that this is a reference to Aeneas plucking up the golden bough uh, as his uh, entree tool, has his key to get into the afterlife. Well, you realize it's Virgil who picks up the rush. So there's a way in which even back in Canto 1, Virgil is rewriting the Aeneid. He's being forced to rewrite it. It's not a golden bow that gets you into this part of the afterlife. It's a humble rush, and that Virgil has to pluck it up. It's, it borders up on mean-spirited. It's difficult. It's, 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 it's causing him to be a little bit humiliated. No, it's not golden bows. It's humble rushes that will get you here. I mean, Virgil has really been at a loss about where to go, except at the gates of Dis. But even there, at the gates of Dis, when he was waiting for the heavenly messenger ultimately to come, even there, he knew the way. They had to get through the gates of Dis. He just didn't know exactly how they were going to do it. But he certainly knew the way. And he's really at a loss in Inferno about the way. He knows exactly what they have to do and which of the giants they have to approach and how they can get down into Cacatus. He knows all of that stuff because he's done it before. Here, in this part of the afterlife, Virgil at times seems out of his depth. And this is one of those moments. He's supposed to be guiding the pilgrim. He said, follow my footsteps, son. And yet, as the sun is turning the sky orange and coming up and everything is beautiful, they're not following anything. Virgil's not leading off the way he should. Let's talk about that problem of hesitancy in the redeemed section of the afterlife. What an interesting thing that you can get to the part where we're going to start to see the redeemed, the redeeming, the being redeemed, but they're still on their way to heaven, the being redeemed soul, but you can be hesitant, not really know where to go. Is this, I have several questions about this, is this a metapoetical statement? I mean, are we seeing a little node of the poet's insecurity? Is Canto 2 a way that the poet is working through his own, ooh, gosh, I don't know that I'm up for this task of purgatory, so I'm essentially going to write a canto about hesitancy, about hanging back, because what lies ahead of me is tough stuff. Or is this an existential truth that even in the good news of the afterlife, you can still not quite know where to go. You can still not know what to do. Do you have this sensation? I do all the time. As you may know, my husband and I write cookbooks. And, you know, the writing of a cookbook is an incredibly elaborate process. We concept out, let's say, 200 recipes together. He goes away. Over several months, he creates those recipes. They may end up like the concepts or not. I write them into a book. <laughs> they look like 
ink spilled on a page is what his notes look like or like a chicken walked in ink and walked across a page. Anyway, I write that into a book. I eventually get the book into a coherent form. I send it off. You know, the editor then deals with it. We go through photo shoots. I go through layouts. I deal with all the layout of the text and the photos. I mean, this is a really, really elaborate process. And when it's all done, when we finally press send to print from the publisher in New York and the whole thing is over, I often have about a week in which I just don't know what to do. I sit in a chair. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell you. I sit in a chair and watch Instagram reels or TikTok videos endlessly because I just don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with my life? Uh, wh- what happened? I-, I crashed down into this deadline and then I just got lost. Well, is that part of the existential human truth that you finally get to the good place and you kind of don't know what to do because you've been fighting it so long, 34 cantos of Inferno, you've been fighting it so long that now that you're here, what, what do you do? Now, let's say this. It's impossible to sin here. Nobody can commit a sin from this point onward. So this hesitancy must not be a sin. It's got to be something else because you can't sin in purgatory. You can't sin in paradise. That's not going to work in Christian theology. Now, it's true. No one here has yet had the beatific vision. We'll talk so much more about that way down in paradise. But no one's here had the beatific vision in which they're solidified into goodness. They're petrified into goodness. No, no one's had that. But still, the notion of sinning in purgatory, it couldn't have occurred. So this can't be a fault or a sin. It could be a mistake. Does that mean there can be mistakes without sins? Oh, that's so interesting. I mostly come down on this that it's just human, that it's knowing what to do but just not doing it. You know, being told, okay, look, uh, you injured your shoulder. You have to ice it four times a day. And then, you know, about the third day, you didn't ice it at all. And by the fifth day, you're, I don't know, lugging pots out of your garage and you're just going to hurt your shoulder. It's knowing what you're supposed to do, but just not doing it. These are humans. Dante has been returned to his natural, that is, his breathing, living color. And so that he doesn't know what to do reflects on his humanness. That Virgil doesn't know what to do may reflect on Virgil's changing role and being out of his depths. Let's read the first 12 lines of Canto Two of Purgatorio one more time. The sun had already gotten up to the horizon, that is, at the meridian circle at which it stands up over Jerusalem at its highest point. Likewise, midnight, that is, the circle coming around from the other side, was rising up from the Ganges River with the scales of Libra, which fall from the night's hand as she takes on her full reign. In just such a moment, just where I was, the white and rosy cheeks of gorgeous Aurora were becoming orange as she aged. But we were still hanging around on the seashore. We were like people who think at the road ahead, whose hearts are moving on, even as their bodies remain where they are. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Well, I do hope you enjoy it. I think this is fun. I think it's unbelievably interesting to take this thing apart bit by bit and see how it works inside and see what we can see for the poet and what his problems are and even how he solves those problems. If you wouldn't mind, it'd be great if you could rate this podcast and even more than a rating, if you could just write a comment like, great podcast or nice job, that'd be pretty fantastic. The podcast is unsupported. So that is the way that you can actually support this podcast, and I would most appreciate it. But mostly what I appreciate is that you're here with me. Come to my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdotty.com. Drop comments there. We can have discussions there about all kinds of things in purgatory and beyond. Oh, I don't know. Icing your shoulder. We can talk about that there, too. <laughs> Otherwise, I will see you back here next time for the next passage from Canto 2 of Purgatorio. I'm Mark Scarborough. I am ready for it. <laughs>